Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 22nd of July 2018. It's been quite a week up here in Ontario because there's so many forest fires, it's all on the go. And on Friday there, there were planes going back and forth, the big water bombers as they call them, and helicopters and so on. And the smell in the air of smoke was so thick, it was really, it was getting pretty nasty actually to breathe. I'm not on all day, but there's still fighting, of course, all these fires that are going on. And there are many reasons for it, of course, but part of the reason to today, I think, as well, is that a few years ago, I remember reading how they were literally privatizing the whole industry at one time of uh, firefighting for forest fires, that is. And as you know, that everything gets privatized eventually becomes incredibly expensive. Whereas electricity or whatever in Ontario, for instance, in Canada, and water, of course, and at the same time too, yet yet because it becomes so expensive, when big fires break out, for instance, they have to start hiring teams from other outside the province of Ontario, and sometimes outside the country itself. Uh, they've got them from I think from the U.S. as well, coming in, and they're not big teams; they're they're small because it's so lucrative today. The private companies that run them. The teams of maybe 10 or 11 people in a team, it's not a lot of people. And you, you hire the team and maybe a water bomber at the same time. And so on. I don't really know too much about it. And like most things today, you can spend your life trying to learn things which uh, come and go throughout your life so quickly as they change and change and change, along with thousands of other things you relearn, then uh, you just can't keep up with it, so... Who knows if they'll ever go back. I don't think they'll ever go back to a, a basically publicly owned system for essential services. That's how it seems to be. At one time, for instance, your, your, your police, everything it was put down as an essential service. Your power, especially too, all kinds of power, that was gas and electricity, etc. It was also down to, to a, a necessary public expense. Today we live in an age of greed, incredible greed, until things are really falling apart. When, when you bring in shareholders and you keep expanding and bringing in more and more shareholders, then you must get higher returns to pay them all their shares. And you can only do it by expanding your business and charging more all the time or cutting back on your employees, the, the one or the other. And the same thing happened in countries that denationalized health services and things like that too. And we still see it even in Canada here. They're always asking for more and more money. And in reality, uh, when you see the incredible amounts of money that they do throw at them, it's because now you have a big bureaucracy, like a civil service almost, of, of a private civil service running these massive institutions called hospitals today. Very lucrative, of course. And... A lot of the professions, too, are way too overpriced. And it had to happen. It was predicted to happen by a lot of people in the know at the time, way back in the, the 60s, like Carl Quigley, who actually wrote a little bit about it, about health systems and so on. As more people got into becoming doctors and so on, they, they weren't content on having the status and having the so-called privilege of serving the public good they would actually be in it for incredible amounts of money. And he said it would become dysfunctional eventually. I think we're seeing a lot of that today. And there have been many experiments across the world 
in the areas of medicine, for instance, where you, you found people, I mean, a lot of people went into these areas, including the nursing staff and doctors, and, as a vacation at one time. And a lot of doctors, even in the early days in, in Britain and other European countries, used to devote a lot of their free time, free of charge, to charitable run hospitals. And it's a shame, in a sense, that that spirit's all gone. We live in such, it was true, winners and losers, that's what they preach now in business school. You want to be a winner, and that means a winner to them is, is how much money you do bring in personally for yourself. That's what a winner is. The second part is how much status do you get from it, but now it's, it's the greed factor. In the old Soviet Union, I think I saw a documentary many years ago where they, they actually give a lot of tests at school, and the state decided who who could go and become and study medicine for ability purposes, solely for that. And they really were not given more money than, see, a plumber would be. And there were still good doctors, mind you. And the Chinese system, they did different experiments. It's quite interesting to see. Uh, for instance, it's a huge country with a massive population. And in the earlier days, I don't know when, how far back it was, maybe the, the 80s, maybe or 90s, they had articles in the papers where British doctors and surgeons went over and followed them around, different teams around. They, they go out into the communities and the villages and towns and they would have set operations. I mean, general hospitals, for instance, have different surgeries for different days for different ailments, the more, the more routine ailments, for instance. So the Chinese trained them in teams. They didn't give them the full training to be a doctor, by the way, or a surgeon. But they were trained exactly how to perform the operation, and their helpers too, and anaesthetists was trained for what drugs to give and what to watch out for, etc., etc. And they said they were very successful, and they're a very low rate of uh, post-operative shock or stress or, or infections even. So it was very, what they were proving is that you didn't have to spend so many years, for instance, to perform simple operations. All they, all they were taught, for instance, you had teams who would just do, say, hip replacements. That's all, all they would do, as an example. This team, that's all they would ever, that's all they'd know. And so it's, it's interesting to see what has been done um, in different areas of medicine. But I think Quigley, for all his own problems, because he was a humanist, he was a, a believer in um, the Julian Huxley system, because they all belonged to the same group, by the way. A group uh, that Quigley said were that often mistaken as being communist, as Julian Huxley was. He was also accused of the same things, but they really belonged to the same humanist agenda, which was a, a clique. More than a clique, in fact, Julian Huxley even said that they'd have to form, they'd have to form a pretty well secret society, a club of professionals and academia and so on to, to make this whole agenda for UNESCO and that come true. So we live in an age, as I say, where a lot of what they talk about doing today, even in medicine, has been tried before and inevitably they all follow the same route. Today, because the answer today in a humanistic society is pure basic materialism. How much money do you earn? What can you do with it? What can you show off? And greed runs the show. So hospitals now with so many specialists earning off massive amounts of money, and even your GPs earning lots and lots of money, it just eventually will collapse. Simple as that.
The answer to, okay, and eugenics, of course, is to start, which they're already doing, rather than spend money in treating long-term patients or patients who are terminal and even not terminal. I've given some stories over the last few weeks on that. But uh, they're giving euthanasia pills. It's very, very cheap, of course. I've even read some stories on the, you know, openly on, on the show about people who are younger and who don't have terminal illnesses. They may have various paralysis or whatever, but they could do some home care, basic home care. They, and, but rather than give them that, you see, it comes off the same system. The drier you take the euthanasia pill, even if you're in your 20s. So money rules the show today, and it, it, does, it will not end well. But what we're talking about here was planned, discussed an awful long time ago by people like Julian Huxley, a big player in all of this. At least, at least, at least he was a definite big front man. I think most of them are all front men to an extent, but big uh, front men. He knew H.G. Wells. They all believed in the early days of uh, a super race, long before Adolf Hitler came along. They believed in uh, killing off, basically, and sterilizing inferiors, as they called them, and the lower classes. And they managed to even get round World War II when, when Hitler basically copied the idea of eradication of different races because Britain was way ahead of them in the idea department. And it's only really people like Chesterton who really held them at bay. They would have been doing the same thing all over the place in the UK long before. Adolf Hitler basically copied the whole thing under racial hygiene. And here we are today doing the same things he was accused of doing. And yet it's done as a good... Every every newspaper presents it as as a good thing. It's a good thing. And what you often find in, in life, the longer you live, if you're awake early on, and you think about things early on for yourself, you don't just pirate things, then you'll see that all the old arguments which are frowned upon become lauded as time goes on. At one time, for instance, you'll find that that sex with adults, with children, was horrific. And literally, the police would stand away while certain parents might just go and attack some perpetrator. That, That happened fairly commonly at one time. And yet today, they're changing everything, the next step and the next step and the next step. So now they're pushing for the right to have sex with children, as long as they can give consent. And now, they discussed that so many times because it's done to a timetable, literally a timetable. Every 10 years, they kick it into the next, the next phase. And you live through this. You know what's going to happen because you've even read the fact that they're doing it to a timetable from their own sites or their own, own publications a long time ago. And you live through it, as I say. So things that were frowned upon become pushed uh, as okay. But you'll find even long before all that, even when it was frowned upon, the big organizations like the Huxleys and so on were promoting the same idea. Anything which could make sex uh, purely a recreational thing, and I mean almost, almost purely, to depopulate, don't have children. The state would pick up the slack of, of any problems. They'd deal with it all and pay for it all and so on. And just have lots and lots of sex. So the whole idea is to wean people away from having a partner 
because only with a partner would you really want, generally in the old days, to have a child. And then you bring it up as a family, this thing called a family. And the, the family was the enemy of this, this organization, which, by the way, was a part of the Milner organization, but they did the part of for the left wing, because you must, your main target group must be on your side. So you, you, you come out as a champion of the left and the working people. They are your target. Whereas the other side, the Royal for International Affairs, dealt mainly with foreign policies and things like that, and maintaining the, the, their own elitist culture in the system. And it's quite fascinating to, to actually see it all come to pass, everything that they planned come to pass in your own lifetime, and how they've trained everybody and to be in camps. Everybody today is so politicized. It's incredible to watch it. I don't go into town very often, for instance, and when I do, I'm conscious once in a while that if I say something about, I say, a product in a store or something like that, and what you're saying is simply because you've looked into different things, even for the products, but they haven't. They look, they look upon you rather curiously as, how do you know that? And, and why did you want to know that? And how, what made you want to know that or whatever? And the, you can see almost in, in some areas of conversation, this, this general chit-chat that you're, as, as you pass by, basically, almost the, the readiness for, for, for attack. Because the people have become politicized to be hostile with their political correctness and everything else. And it's almost as though they're all, all waiting for someone else to say something to pounce on them. Even when you're not saying anything for them to pounce on, it's almost like you, you get the idea they're ready. It's quite fascinating to watch it. And you can actually tell by the age groups of who's had the most indoctrination with the, re- the recent crop up to, up to the age of 20 or whatever. And then you realize, too, that if you don't watch television, you're, you're not getting the daily programming. They're all getting through fiction, television, and documentaries, and so on. They don't realize everything's geared to give them their opinions because they're presenting in such a way with selected viewpoints and situations with the omission of other sides of the same situations or viewpoints and so on. And so they think they've been taught at all, and anyone outside of those, those viewpoints is there they're for an enemy. It's quite interesting to see it. And I've seen it just holding my tongue and watching other people chat in stores, and you can see them ready pouncing each other. It's quite fascinating. It really is. And I'm not surprised by it, because Bertrand Russell talked about they could train the people to believe anything, anything, if they get them young enough. That's always been understood. And with the right indoctrination, Russell said, and Russell, he's a lord, a British lord, eh? with his different books he, he churned out. Again, a good friend of, the, of, of um, the Huxleys. Don't forget the Huxleys too. The grandfather, I think it was Thomas, or Thomas Huxley, he became Darwin's bulldog, they called it, the champion for Darwin, as a matter Darwin died. So you find they're all on board with the same agenda, and they'd all appear to be left-wing, including the British lords, these hereditary lords. Until you realized, and you really got dig into the Royal Institute for International Affairs that dealt with the empire, which they were still building at the time, 
and very profitable for them all at the top. Because for, for every invasion of a country to civilize it, as they called it, or to help the poor people by t- plundering them, they profited mightily uh, from the loot, basically. And the great thing about having an empire is in a country back home, you can always tax your own people to pay for it, for, for its policing and for its troops and, and for uh, railway lines to take all the raw materials out and so on. Anyway, they all worked for one organization. They owned the right wing, they owned the left wing, and everything in between. Because that's how you do it. Uh, you don't allow a true opposition anywhere to start up unless you're in charge of it. So Quigley said it. He said, we're often mistaken for communists because a lot of our agenda has a lot in common with uh, communism. And there he was referring to the massive study through science of human behavior and the proper training and education and uniformity uh, creating uniform society uh, and standardizing. It's, it's been awfully effective. Awfully effective. It's incredible, really. It's a shame, but it's true. Many years ago, I talked about communitarianism, another big part of this plan. They've used lots of terms, of course, and each time people begin to figure out what it really means, people speak out against it, then they, they change it. But communitarianism is the same sort of thing. You're, you're constantly told, no matter where you go, that you're part of of their community and and the community is part of you. And they have all these special things on in the community for all the PC things and updated cultural changes and all the rest of it, whoever it happens to be. They'll have a lot of nice things too. Let's all get together and and clean up the trash and and parks. I think that's not bad, you see. You've got to have things like that to get the folk to start to fall for all. But then when they start... Uh, think about it here. Think about it. You're in an age of mass communication, mass surveillance like you've never seen before. And you only know a tiny fraction, which is massive at the same time, a tiny fraction of, of the surveillance on you on a daily basis. Never mind where it's all supposed to go. Well, eventually, I said years ago, eventually you'll have to attend all the communitarian functions as a good citizen. And if you don't eventually do that, you might get away with it once or twice, you know, I'm sick or what, I had a headache. Or but they only want to know why. Why didn't you come to this function or that function, whatever it happens to be? And because this is what, you have to conform. That's the message today, conformity. It's, it's quite amazing to me, conformity. And I also know, too, with all the networking systems, they call it networking, of all the NGO groups that all come out en masse to protest something together, regardless of whatever it is they're actually supposedly part of at the time. They'll all do that. And that that came from the Communist Party at one time, which used to astonish me. I used to wonder why the Communist Party had agents walking back and forth from Canada uh, and having from Moscow University and having meetings during the Cold War, uh, with the communists in, in Canada, across Canada. And talking about their agendas for, for networking all types of groups together. If someone's having a protest about whatever it happens to be, then all the different groups, no matter what their particular area of, of, or, of um, angst is or whatever, would all get together and show a massive support. That's, that's the norm today. That, that's standard today.
I've always said that be careful if you join a group because you'll never really know what the real agenda is. You might think it's for you. Only the ones that are near the top have an idea what it's all about in reality. And they're heavily funded at the top with their own, uh, some, of them have even their own <laughs> some of them even have their own office towers. Massive organizations and foundations. And NGO leaders with uh, massive pension funds and retirements and oh, they live like kings, some of them. But the followers are generally free. They come for free. And they'll never know what it's all really about. Never, ever know. Now we have to remember that in the late 1800s, early 20th century, you'll find these organizations that sprung up with the the Darwinian ideas of uh, supreme beings, you might say, and sponsored the whole idea of survival of the fittest. And then Galton came on board with it all and so on. It really took off because it, it, it all, what it simply did was, was put into words for the public under a guise of scientific study, that which the wealthy nobility and elite and aristocracy of UK had always thought anyway and talked amongst themselves. There's nothing new in it really. But you see, here's the difference is, is putting it under the guise of science. Once something is scientific, or, or claims to be scientific, it seems to have an authority to it, you see. It's not just an opinion, or a prejudice. It's scientific. It's like the idea, too, of lies, damn lies, and then there are statistics. I think it was one of the Roosevelt said that, and it's quite right. There, there are lies. You know, what's a lie? You'll say, well, that's your opinion, or you're a liar, or whatever. Damn lies, which comes to a heated argument, and then say, "Well, well, here's how, what I'm, I'm going to base what I'm going to say on," and they, they give you statistics. And so that means that they're going to win the argument. Although today they even teach in universities how to win by fudging statistics. It depends on how you look upon it. <laughs> it's quite interesting, really. It's almost it's almost like the old idea, the old joke of the optimist looking at a bottle of booze. And it's half full. That's, that's the optimist. Whereas the pessimist says, well, well it's, it's half empty. It's the same kind of thing. It's, it's all how you can fudge uh, the, the viewpoint of what, what the data that you're getting. And you can see 100% said so-and-so when you only have a couple of people actually took part in any experiment. So in other words, there's all kinds of tactics they use to, to make their points and so on. So science, and adding science, oh, it's a science has proven. Even though I've read over the years, uh, you know, on the radio, different exposés or follow-ups on many of the big claims that are made, even in medicine. Because every year you say, oh, the scientists have found scientists. And again, it's generally says scientists have found. But they're all living on grants, these people. That's how they make their living. Big, big grants. On subjects which generally terrify the public, like cancer or whatever. And so they, they'll, they come up with wonderful claims about this particular drug down the road might have. And of course, pharma's happy with that because they can, they can always make big sales for a few years until people find out it doesn't work very well. Or there are terrible side effects. Or, or like, like Vioxx, for instance, that cause strokes and deaths, etc. And it was given out for arthritis at the time. 
for years, but, and they keep poo-pooing. Oh, it's just you know, again the, the statistics game until they, they couldn't they couldn't deny it anymore. This happens quite frequently, but a lot of the the the, the uh, studies that they make amazing claims with is just to get another grant for another year and to live well and go off and see beautiful you know foreign exotic countries on their travels and as, as they're doing their studies. So, uh, and then, then, they're, then they're, they're actually, again, as, as other groups look at these studies uh, down the road, they'll, they'll find some completely opposite uh, meaning or, or a different answer altogether. That's the way it's done. That's the way it's done. It happens all the time. Most of them, 90% they say, uh, just goes in the, on the waste paper basket eventually. These things. Because humans are awfully good at uh, inventing uh, ways of, of living awfully well. <laughs> and good news is always better than uh, the truth sometimes. Science is tacked onto it. That's exactly what Julian Huxley did with Eugenic Society. And, oh, it's scientific now. So we, we can say that, that the most of those folk you see who are work, working class and living huddled in those big brick buildings and 20 to a room and dying awfully early. Uh, it's not because they didn't have running water or hygiene or toiletry and so on. It's because they're from bad stock. And that was taught as a religion for an awful long time. It still is, actually. It really is still taught as a religion in academia, more so in some professions than others. So it's their own fault, you see, for being poor. If they weren't, if they, if they were of better stock, they wouldn't be in the mess around. They'd be living like us, you see. That's what they'd say to, the, to each other. People really have a, a thing about justifying their own status in society. And I have met amazing people who, who all they'll tell you is them, about themselves and how they're, they're so great to whatever they do because of their income they bring in and all the rest of it. It's quite fascinating to see it. And you'll, you'll see it in medicine as well, even today, because now you see you can actually, you can actually say, well, it's scientifically proven that the, these folk now, they've got bad genes, that's why they've got these illnesses. Now, in society, in the world in general, to even hear the fact that, you, you, that you, even your illnesses, which are now classed as a burden on society, don't forget this. Don't forget this. And it's taught in these little courses when folk are studying medicine today. And I mean little courses because when it comes to even uh, diet, for instance, they know very, they're taught maybe an hour in their, all, these, all their studies is on, on diet and that's it. Same thing with, with this. The change has gone on drastically since about the 1970s in their tuition. As you, and that's how you do it. You nudge them a little bit at a time with each class that comes in until you get them pretty well looking in the opposite direction from previous people who, who passed the same exams long ago. Because now rather than just help people, you're, you're taught a little bit about the cost burden on society. See, they're, they're all going to eventually eventually work in, in a form of socially backed medicine. Most of it is even in the States and their private hospitals get massive grants. They get massive from different funding from different areas. I haven't I've yet to meet a big corporation yet that, that doesn't live on corporate welfare of any kind, you know. Any type of corporation. The bigger they are the more so they do it. So what you do is you start training them 
in a humanistic way. In a, in a, when you've already created an atheistic society, which is interesting to see how they stage it all, and they keep pulse of all, and they know exactly when to start. Let's teach them this now, you see, and, uh, and, and uh, they'll be humanists. And we'll tell them that, you see, these people here are, are sick, and they're going to pass on their bad genes to, to children. And, you know, well, we can't just sterilize them at the moment. It wouldn't be ethical, and there'd be a massive backlash. Therefore, blah, 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 blah. And that's really how a lot of uh, a lot of them are taught in this day and age. And it's true enough. You understand, the old idea of control is you can't, there's no such thing as, as open control. Like, everybody's allowed to do their own thing in a democracy. Don't, don't fall for that one, for goodness sake. There's always control in the big system in which we live. Always control. And like a big business plan, every part of it is planned, like a long-term business plan. Different parts of the agenda to be introduced at a certain, a certain year, and they hope to have you here by this time, blah, 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 blah. Just like the articles are read from the military academies and the think tanks, which they published back in about 2008 or whatever it was, for the British military, first of all, which coincided with the later American one, too. And also for NATO, the same, the same think tanks who work for NATO. And they were kind of futuristic societies and how the military have to change for the forthcoming and so on. But they did mention, they did mention the massive um, population increase due to mass movements of people. But don't worry, it would start to flatten out about the year 2050. Well, you see, the speed we're going now for indoctrination and for PC, political correctness, and your updates by watching the same standardized memes on television and movies and so on at the same time across the planet. It makes sense. Because by then, very few folk will choose to have children at all. More, even less than you have today. And that will go too for all the, 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 the recent immigrants, the descendants of the recent immigrants that have come in through all the wars that's been caused across the Middle East and elsewhere. They'll also have children growing up who, who will be trained to go for the material goods for themselves, to live a happy life and all that, and not to, to want children, or even a mate for that matter. If it's just sex, as they say, well, it's separated from marriage, it's separated from love and bonding, just have sex, there you go. But don't, don't get bonded, don't get married or have a mate, not for any length of time at least, and, and for goodness sake, don't have children. And that's how it's going today, of course. We truly are trained. And if you dig in to UNESCO, that Julian Huxley was the head of for a long enough period. And if you even care to know, most folk don't, but, but if you even care to know what made the guy, Julian Huxley, to be this uh, almost a freak of eugenics and... and um, to understand his personality and, and his character in the early 1900s, he believed, and, and again, from, from his family lineage, etc., and from, uh, from the Huxleys being part of Darwin's bulldogs, he really believed that the, elite, the, the, the masses of illiterate, uh, low-class populace, the working type poor, would outbreed the elite. And that was, a, that was a big fear they all had. He wrote about it and talked about it. And he, that's why he said they'd have to form a society, a secretive society, 
using science or the guise of science to, to change the whole world. And they'd also uh, have to give lots of incentives to find a better stock of people amongst their own groupings and have them breed as many children as they could. And out of that, that whole idea, you got different books, The Handmaid's Tale, all these different kind of things, and dystopian futures, right down to Brave New World, written by his brother Aldous Huxley. A, a society where everyone would be, would be basically from the same, you might say, test tube, and, uh, and they would get the better genes and split them off into many, 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 many pairs and, and so on and grow perfectly standardized groups of people for different functions who would be happy what they did and would cause little trouble. Even the ones who did the menial tasks would, would, uh, wouldn't cause much trouble at all. They'd be, they'd be bred to, to, I mean really bred, to accept their work quite happily. So yeah, Julian Huxley was an absolute elitist, absolute elitist. I mean, folk have no idea the history behind our present society and where we are today. They have no idea at all. Because they're trained to believe that somehow we just stumble along day by day and those at the top stumble along day by day and, and we just stumble down through time. Uh, and uh, things change out of almost spontaneously by themselves. They have no idea the massive planning it goes in and the training of each generation of the populace so that when they grow up, all the big changes are quite natural to them. They think that it's their own doing that the changes happen. No, it's not. No, it's not at all. I'll put up some links to articles about Huxley. Julian Huxley, one of them especially is to do with a good part of his life and, and how he worked at UNESCO and his real points of view and so on, and the other organizations he belonged to as well. And it's, um, it's called Julian Huxley, Continuity of Eugenics, 20th Century. I'll put it up because even in the bottom, when you scroll down and you look at all of the different articles from university articles mainly about Huxley and his impact on the system and society of today, with planned abortions and eugenics being introduced all over the place. And again, promiscuity was all part of his agenda too, from the earlier 1920s onwards, as a, as a form of breaking down society and, and to eliminate the bonding aspect of, of uh, sexual activity, separate it all together. It's incredible how it's all happened, really. And he was only one of, of a group working together that made all this happen with the massive funding from the foundations and the Rockefeller group as well. I mentioned Rockefeller because you find it was Rockefellers uh, that also sponsored the so-called, so-called, I mean so-called studies by this, the sexologist Kinsey with the Kinsey Institute. And he fudged most of his studies, in fact, uh, it was Kinsey, to get society to start to experiment and all that. A big, big agenda behind it all. But uh, it's fascinating to see, the, as I say, the amount of uh, books and articles written about uh, Julian Huxley and uh, United Nations, UNESCO, etc.
and uh, eugenics. They were heavily involved in eugenics for superior species. Don't forget, too, that, that he also coined the term transhumanism. He believed that they could, we could be forced to evolve through our own uh, involvement in changing uh, genes and tampering with genes and so on, and, and that you create a transhumanist society. It's all here. Everything that's happened today, even with different gender topics and so on, of today, uh, he, he was up there from the 1920s onwards advocating all this stuff and working hard with other groups and other specialists, you might say, to make it all happen, social experimenters. Quite amazing. So I'll put that one up too. And also, eugenics, mental deficiency, and Fabian socialism between the wars. Because again, uh, the H.G. Wells and other, other members of the, of the Fabian Society in socialism were simply the left wing of the, the same bird that had the right wing of uh, the Royal Institute for International Affairs run all sides and train even this is this, the, those you're going to change, train them all so you must get the working classes. They were the main target for all. <laughs> Quite amazing, isn't it? And how blatant they were too, even, even in the 1800s, how blatant uh, with their books about changing the, the whole planet basically and, and directing its growth and its changes themselves. It's, and intergenerational Leaders, people who were who were the sons and daughters of of the of the leaders, still still today managing the whole darn thing. A lot of them. So I'll put some of these up too to to let you you see where it uh, talks. So, I mean, he, here's one too about these eugenics experimenters and and uh, promoters. It talks about this article here, but the Fabians and the socialist left, the men and women are revered to this day. So George Bernard Shaw, a founding member of the Fabian Society, along with Wells, could insist that the only fundamental and possible socialism is a socialization of the selective breeding of man. Even suggesting in a phrase that shows the blood that defectives will, will be dealt with by means of a lethal chamber. Now, don't think that the present groups that are in their 20s, maybe up to, up to the age of 30, or somehow, and who've got the, the green hair and all that, and they're even changing genders. Now, don't think they all decided to do all this, all this by themselves. Any more than, than the lethal chambers that we're prattling about here weren't taught to, the, to, the previ- to their parents, actually, to their parents, who were taught that through, mainly through fiction, but again, in academia, these things were brought up too, to try to get them on board with it all. I'm talking about their parents, they're maybe in their 60s a day. And if you look at the old Star Trek series, the Star Trek series put a lot of this stuff out in a fictional form. It's the greatest way to get ideas across. Because you, your barriers are down. Your, your, your firewall is down. And you think you're getting entertained. But I can remember re-watching not too long ago one of the ones in Star Trek where they land on a planet and... They have basically euthanasia chambers because the wars that they have with these other people, they use planets as opposed to just countries. It's the same thing, you see. And because that uh, they were so destructive uh, in these wars, they, could, they actually 
would simply have computers pretend that, that uh, uh, through randomly, uh, that, that a missile had hit your little town or village and took out so many of your people. It would give you a number, and it would also give you a list of the ones in that area that they pretended to hit. Just like a video game, they'd walk into chambers. And they're obedient. They all went and got If it didn't go, the guards came and took them and pushed them into it. And in the episode, they even had a very, a very superficial debate as to why it was a good thing. Well, they're different cultures, and so well, it worked for them, and it's true enough, you don't have any, any mass destruction and so on. That's how they get ideas across to you. Another one, too, was Kirk. Captain Kirk ends up uh, transporting somewhere. He ends up instead on a, a, a duplicate enterprise ship that, that nobody's on initially. There's just nobody there except himself. And then he meets a girl. Then you get little glimpses of, of faces looking into the, the portholes and looking through into the ship. Occasional little glimpses. And it turns out that uh, the people from a, a planet who were overpopulated to such an extent they had no room to move. Plus they'd conquer, and here's the key to it all, H.G. Wells complained about this too. He says, if you help the poor and all the rest of it and divert uh, people from dying of sicknesses and diseases and all the rest of it, you'll get overpopulated. Well, that was, in, that was in the Star Trek episode. These people had conquered death pretty well or because they had no disease and they could stop aging. So they, they, they grew to a certain age and, and stayed at it and, and just lived in this kind of Hades, rubbing shoulders with each other forever, and, and, and it was terrible. So the girl was sent out by a committee in order to contract uh, germs off Kirk, germs from a different planet that, might, that they didn't have any immunity to, to help start killing them off and thinning out their population. That's how they get ideas across. So don't think the present ones, who, who really seem so different, came to these decisions by themselves to behave the way they're behaving. It's all programmed through entertainment and through their education at school, step by step by step. Beria, don't forget, in, in the, 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 the Sovietized system of the 1930s, with the Comintern meetings that they had international communism, they went over to their big uh, world meetings in Russia, he said that it used to take them a whole generation, which was about 70 years, to alter society in an incrementally in any particular direction. So 70 years just to get them to change from seeing sex as this to something else, you see. As an example, he says, but now, with the planning, meaning the planning ahead for, for with changes and say 10 year changes and 20 year changes to implement different parts of different agendas. But he said we can literally upgrade them with intakes of children every four years so that perfectly as they come into the age of 20, what was going to introduce at that time, they'd be mentally trained to accept because they'd heard it before. It's, it's a perfect system. And that, that was without the computer. Today it's too easy with mass communication because they all get the same memes traveling across at the same time. They all watch the same uh, reality shows like Love Island. Or so. It's all over the place. I haven't seen it because I don't watch TV, but it's in all the papers to make sure that the, the folk who, who haven't seen it should look in and see it. 
and uh, and uh, apparently they have um, a kind of reality show with sex, 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 sex. And that's how you get updated with things, you see. You're always getting updated. Entertainment, though, is the best way to do it. Because you can dramatize anything at all through fiction, slant it any way they want, and, until, you know, yeah, the power of Hollywood is incredible, or the stage even. But Hollywood definitely, through the music they use, the emotion they use, they can have you crying or laughing at things perhaps you shouldn't cry at in the first place, or laugh at either. That's a tremendous power. And they know it. That's why you always take over culture. And the communists knew that too. And what's even more fascinating, if you look at the communists, so don't forget the, the, union, the Soviet Union of the Socialist Republic it was. Socialist Republic. USSR. And it's also Soviet, which meant ruled by councils. And that's their NGOs of today, folks, that are fronting for the big foundations that fund them and train them. No one alters and chooses anything for themselves in the society unless they've been programmed to do so. <laughs> it's true, you know. Now, Eugenics, awfully important, as I say. Now, in the 70s, everybody who studied medicine knew, I think in the back of their mind, that this whole push towards, that was getting taught in medicine, that, that their hope in the future would be through eugenics and the study of genetic manipulation. Anybody who really studied it deep enough and long enough knew that they were really talking about the whole field of medicine was going to be purely eugenics-based in that they'd breed out the bad genes and they'd select the good genes, just like Brave New World. That's exactly what they're doing today, as you well know. Our systems across the world now have resuscitate tabs and don't resuscitate tabs for different patients, depending on who you are, your standing and everything else. In society, there's been accidents. Well, <laughs> you can't call them accidents in Britain and other countries that hit the papers because they're, 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 even children are being uh, given little tabs don't resuscitate, and the wrong ones are being given that. <laughs> they found that recently had some cases in the. Because, as I say, medicine is not all it's cracked up to be, and a lot of people who are practicing it shouldn't be practicing it in the first place. But genetic manipulation is obviously the answer to it all. It's your fault, you see, that vaccine makers are awfully good at this today. And you've all read the articles. I've read them out too. When I was on every night in the week on radio, the articles to do with vaccines having terrible reactions on some people. Awful and some lethal as well depending on the type of vaccine, etc. And the answer that the vaccine industries were doing at the time were, was to tell the people they had the wrong genes, that's why. Well, there's no such thing as having the wrong genes. These people were perfectly healthy. Without the vaccines, they'd had a normal life. So, but that's all, that's all they could dream up as well. They had the wrong genes because ours is meant for folk with, within a certain range of particular genes. Or that's their excuse for it. So you, th you think they don't practice eugenics today and they blame the victim? Well, they certainly do. Certainly do. 
And now, as I say, with eugenics, they're offering you, before they'll offer you any other treatment, even long-term treatment, and you could live for years, maybe quite happily. But they've decided, they've decided that your quality of life is not what they're deciding it should be, even if it's quite okay for you. And they're offering you this cheap exit pill. Quite amazing, isn't it? Hmm. But again, most folks today will think, well, I should agree with them. Well, yeah, they might as well, you know. I'm I'm not talking about people who are... There's always been assisted suicide. Always been assisted suicide. And they didn't have to apply for it or to get the medications to do it. When the state's sponsoring it and advocating it, it's a different story, you understand? And they're doing it to the elimination of any other treatment because it's economically healthier for them. They can give more money to some of the specialists that are raking you in or, or those who own the hospitals, the big CEO boys or girls. Now, Julian Huxley, one of his friends was Mary Stops, honoured with a postage stamp in 2008. was a hardline eugenicist. And that she determined that the hordes of defectives would be reduced in number, thereby placing less of a burden on the fit. These are her words, she said. She later disinherited her son, this Marie Stopes. Isn't that wonderful? Because he had married a short-sighted woman, thereby risking a less-than-perfect grandchild. Again, pure eugenics. These people, these people, you know, uh, were truly uh, the, the the hygiene specialists, you might say, the racial hygiene specialists, uh, way beyond even what, what they had in Nazi Germany. Because they wanted not just their own population, but the whole world to go through this. Quite amazing, eh? And they get honoured today. And the folk who honoured them haven't got a clue of the other side of this. Oh, this helped to get abortion and stuff. It's good for women. These folk wanted to slaughter all those that they deemed unfit. And it's not putting words in her mouth. She wrote about and talked about. It's the same thing, too, with Sanger. And Sanger called children weeds. She didn't mind her own children being weeds. And don't forget that Sanger herself, too, was all for the communist system, the socialist system of free love and all the rest of it, and she had plenty of it and had that dealt with. But she believed that she was superior eventually, and that you shouldn't have the children. And she was going to make sure of that. The people you're taught to worship, you should delve in and find out all you can about them. And a lot of folk won't because they've already made their mind up because they, they, they like what they've got now. They like what they've got. You've got to understand how these things creep, creep, creep every few years into the next phase, the next phase, the next phase. And down the road, if not actually now, we're beginning to see the horror show. We're beginning to see the horror show with the advocating of, of more and more panels to, for desk panels for hospitals and things like that. Exactly what Julian Huxley talked about. Everything this man wanted, he's got. It's all here. And more to come yet to be introduced. The specialists like himself, he classed himself as a specialist, you see, 
and those high up in academia, they were all part of the specialist system, should rule the world. Quite openly, they were, this, was, this, was, this was his agenda, to rule the world by specialists and uh, totalitarian-minded people, quite openly. And we're seeing that today, because all you get now is specialists, specialists, specialists in television. Don't, even with the weather, and the weather programs and so on, it might rain today, and there's a, per- there's a specialist to tell you, you better come and, you better take your umbrella. Huh? And that's exactly, again, what you'll find that Bertrand Russell said. We're training the people to do nothing without the advice of specialists. Training them. And yet, yet most folk take everything that they see on, on, their, on, on social networking or television for granted. They think it's just happening by itself somehow. They have no idea what's behind it. Why do you think memes are, 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 are spread across the world suddenly? I've read articles where even MIT puts a lot of them out themselves and studies your reactions to them. It's happening all the time. There's very little out there that's actually free uh, and easy. There's so much of it agenda-driven, never mind incredible, incredible spying on you uh, to, to, to make sure that they can know exactly how to nudge and tweak you along a certain path. And also you find that uh, this, this article too has got what looks uh, cookie or sinister in 2012 struck the pre-war British left as solid and sensible. Harold Lasky, stellar London School of Economics professor, co-founder of the Left Book Club. He's like a communist too. I think he taught communism or, or, or socialism or whatever they want to call it. It's all the same thing. He was co-founder of the Left Book Club, it's called, and one-time chairman of the Labour Party. Cautioned that the time is surely coming when society will look upon the production of a weakling as a crime against itself. Now, he's not, he's not against us. He's just saying to his own people <laughs> that people will start to notice. And, uh, and, and or to, to be more cautious, in other words, really, that's why he said these things, of how you phrase things. Because they all know what their agenda is. So uh, the production of a weakling is a crime against itself. Meanwhile, the, the, the JBS uh, Haldane admired scientist and socialist warned that civilization stands in real danger from overproduction of undermen. Undermen. Uh, that's the term he used. Says even the Manchester Guardian was not immune. Again, left wing. When a parliamentary report 1934 backed voluntary sterilization of the unfit, a Guardian editorial offered warm support endorsing the sterilization campaign. The eugenicists soundly urge, if it's any comfort, the new statesman was in the same camp at the time. And it says, according to Dennis Sewell, whose book called The Political Gene charts the impact of Darwinian ideas on politics, Eugenics movement's definition of unfit was not limited to physically or mentally impaired. It held, he writes, that most of the behavioural traits that led to poverty were inherited. In short, that the poor were generally inferior to the educated middle class. It was not poverty that had to be reduced or even eliminated. It was the poor. And hence the enthusiasm of John Maynard Keynes, director of the Eugenics Society from 1937, to 1944, for those who didn't know. For contraception, essential because the working class was too drunken and ignorant, he said, 
to keep its numbers down. Every hero they give you is a bit of a monster if you sit and think about it. You know, I wish more folk would, would think about it. But again, as most folk, as I say, just choose the camp they want to belong to without doing too much thinking, like Jack's Elul talked about. He's a good philosopher, and he, he says that they, they get all their, all their ideas or their opinions through osmosis, little bits and pieces of information. They don't really consciously think through it themselves. They're just given the opinions, and that is so true. It's all technique, mind you. And uh, Julian Huxley's brother, Aldous Huxley, sometimes gave out uh, almost uh, little warnings to society about techniques to control all society in such a way, using scientific techniques, they'd be unable to resist uh, or even know what was happening to them. Well, that's here. Now my voice is going again because of all the smoke on Friday from the forest fires. And there's some again started again yesterday, Saturday, because uh, some other fires were breaking out. And and again, I saw the aircraft going back and forth, back and forth. So it really is bad for the atmosphere. But they'll blame us all for it too, because it ties in. There's too many of you. You're you're, you're destroying the planet, etc., etc., etc. And that's where all this stuff came from. It's all part of the same eugenics movement. truly is. truly is. And true enough, most of those who are eugenicists have big families themselves because they've always believed in keeping the the superior genes alive to dominate the next generation. So, from myself, Alan Watt from Ontario, Canada, where it's rather smoky up here, it's good night. May your God or your gods go with you.